Some of you are going to think I'm a crackpot junkie after 30 minutes from now. Who's ever felt like they're not good enough? It is so common. We'll all agree in this room that it's those broken moments that give us the opportunity to go within. I was smoking, I was drinking, and then I fell in love, which was so inconvenient at the time. Probably for the first 30 plus years of my life, I was really scared of the truth. The thing about truth is, it's bullshit. (laughs) Nobody gets through life unscathed. We all look at that as if our life is screwed up, that that is actually an opportunity for us to grow and expand. In 2019, the Wellness Base Camp returns. In Fremantle. Newcastle. And our first ever international adventure in Auckland. Two for one tickets are under 100 bucks. Get them before they run out at thewellnessbasecamp.com. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up For A Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are, Up For A Chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Karen Smith. I'm Kim Morrison. And I'm Cindy O'Meara. And you know what, listeners, if you hear a bit of an echo or if you hear us sounding a little bit distant, we're all on our phones in different parts of the country. But we are so excited about doing today's podcast with you. We've got somebody from the UK joining us today, a Dr. Jenny Tishkin, who is joining us. um, and, And this is one of Cindy's unique and amazing discoveries, this beautiful woman. She's a lunchbox doctor, and I cannot wait to dive down and see what being about a lunchbox doctor is all about. She's an author. She's just an an, an astounding human being that has had an incredible profile, has worked on all different levels with all different people across the globe. So I'm going to throw over to you, Cindy, because Jenny is just somebody that is completely, well, she's, she's world famous, clearly but has an, a message that is so profound. So over to you, gorgeous girl. Oh, thank you. I met Jenny in the UK. Uh, I think it was because of Thermomix um, that we met um, and we met in an event and uh, I just watched what she was doing and I've been following her on Instagram. Anyway, about over a year ago, she asked if I would write the foreword for her new book called Gut Health and Probiotics, The Science Behind the Hype. And I, I always read the book before. I won't write a foreword unless I've read the whole book and, whether, and I have to agree with it, otherwise I'm just not going to do it. Well, I read this book and I decided that this book needed to be for all my students at the Functional Nutrition Academy. So I wrote the foreword. I was really excited about it. I, um, I wrote Jenny, I think November last year, and I said, Jenny, I want, I don't know how many copies I said, I want copies of your book because I want to give them away as Christmas presents. And she said, oh, Cindy, it's not going to be out till next year. And as we all know, as we're all authors, we know that it takes time to birth a book. Um, Kim's just finished hers and we all know what it's like. So Jenny, I, I just um, love your book. It is, I have recommended it to so many people now that it's finally out. And you can get this at Angus and Robinson, but we'll make sure we put a link um, so that people can get, download your book or depending on whether it's Kindle or whatever. But 
what my first question for you is, and it's probably the question that we always ask our guests is, how did you get into being the lunchbox doctor and doing what you do and writing this fabulously researched book? Yeah, well, thank you. Um, and thank you for the lovely welcome. Um, so I had an interest in nutrition from quite an early age, actually due to sport. Um, I used to play a lot of hockey and I was selected as one of the top 45 in my age group when I was a teenager. And I got given a, a diet sheet um, and that was sort of for, for the, you know, the future national squad. It was the, what the, the nutrition advice that was being given at the time. Um, but as one of a very large family, I'm the youngest of seven children. I never made the, 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 the correlation, if you like, between what we put into our bodies and the performance, the outcome. And as soon as I'd made that connection, it was sort of like that was that was the birth point for me as far as my kind of close relationship with nutrition and my desire to learn more um, is concerned. But I actually ended up following a very traditional path, going into a corporate role in IT. And I didn't think about nutrition until, unfortunately, that I was playing National League hockey and my back went. Um, and I think a lot of that was to do with the, the strain and the stress that I was putting on my body, both physically and mentally. And it really made me sit up and think, what do I want to do? And I actually ended up studying another degree, um, this time in nutrition, and whilst I was studying that degree, I realized that a lot of my own nutrition issues related to my gut. Now, this is, we're talking early 2000s here. This was very early in our knowledge of gut health. And I found out um, that even though I had traveled the world and uh, I'd been to Africa three times and brought back more than my suitcases each time, I didn't know why I had these problems. I didn't know why I was prone to picking up things. Um, and it was only when I started doing my own investigations that I realized this was a subject that was so, it was so key to so many aspects of our health that I needed to investigate it further. And that's why it took so long to write the book. Ah, because we, we weren't even, we were kind of talking about gut health uh, when I was over there, but you know, you were known as the lunchbox doctor and I guess that's where it all started. So tell us why you started as the lunchbox doctor. What, what did yeah. you see that was needed in your, you know, community or in England for that matter? Yeah, I am. Um, so I had my children whilst I was doing my second degree in nutrition. And when my daughter first started going away from the home to school, I realized that the sort of food that she'd been having at home was not the sort of food that her peers were eating at school. And because, you know, imagine I'm the nutritionist, I'm the one at home that's preparing these beautiful things. We didn't, we didn't really have bread as such, um, actually partly because she didn't like it. If I gave her a sandwich, she'd take out the inside and not eat the bread, which I thought was, you know, her communicating to me what she really needed. Um, and so when she, School, I started to write about what she was doing, what we were doing to sort of get around this because I looked at the lunch boxes that most of her peers had and I actually looked terrible. It was a, a fruity, sugary yogurt, more sugar than fruit. It was possibly a chocolate bar. It was a packet of crisps. Um, it, was a, it was a sandwich, but it, it was more bread than filling and I looked at the nutritional profile of that and just thought that's that doesn't reflect what our bodies actually need 
So when I started writing about that, um, blogging and the Facebook group, and it started to build. Um, and in 2012, there was a, a whole political thing in this country, which was about banning pet lunch boxes because they were so terrible that the only way we'd solve the problem was to get rid of the problem, to get rid of people being able to bring their own lunch boxes to school, which I thought, hold on, that doesn't, that doesn't help anyone because no one's getting the education then about what they should be doing or what they could be doing. Um, so I've ended up uh, becoming known as the UK's lunchbox expert and ended up sort of doing you know, lots of TV, lots of interviews for national press. And it's still a hot topic. I still get asked about that today. Um, I do shows all over the UK. I do shows abroad. Um, I work in Dubai. Um, and I have done some things further afield. And it's, it's, it's great. Um, you know, I am known as the Lunchbox Doctor. But equally, I do a lot of other, a lot of other work. Um, under my own brand uh, as the nutritionist, uh, a lot of speaking, um, a lot of uh, recipe development and a lot of brand ambassadorial roles. Jenny, do you, do you find that um, the problem is worldwide as you travel around the world speaking and, and supporting other communities that are in other countries? Do you find that the same problem exists or are there specific or some countries that just seem to do it better than others? I actually do think the problem tends to be worldwide and I believe it is because we have this sort of abundance of food and we have a dominant processed food industry. And one of my sort of little takeaways that I often say to people is if a product is packaged and certainly for busy parents who are you know, under duress most of the time and want to select better foods for their children, if, if that product then says ideal for lunch boxes on the packaging, generally it's not. It generally means that it has been processed, it has been packaged, it is going to last, it is going to survive being thrown around in the lunchbox. That doesn't actually mean it's that nutritious and certainly not something we want to be providing for our children. That What I, I see is quite a critical time of the day. It's halfway through their school day. They're at school to learn. Um, and so, yes, I think it doesn't really matter about different sort of cultures as such. I mean, obviously there are some cultures where Pat lunches don't even exist. France, for example, they don't take lunches to school. They provide a very good school lunch, which in many cases is three courses. Um, and that means there's going to be vegetables to start and there's going to be vegetables with the main and the, the dessert maybe has something else in it, but it's a three course meal. But most countries where pat lunches are do feature the US, the UK and Australia, um, we do have the same problems. Absolutely. Do you think then with your knowledge around nutrition and all the things that you're doing, Jenny, can, can you hear me? Sorry, did I come through okay? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. So with the beautiful books that you've prepared, from what I can see with sheet pan cooking and the multi-cooker cookbook, you're obviously um, busy and you've designed these particularly for families that are on the go, it seems, because those are the sort of things that you just want to put in the oven or put in the cooker and know that dinner will be cooked while you're doing a million and one other things. Was that your intent behind those two books in particular? Absolutely. I just look at what the needs of, you know, busy families are and we don't have time, but most people 
really do want to feed and provide uh, real food for their family, cooking from scratch. And I only have to look at the success uh, and the popularity of some of the companies that deliver ingredients to your door or deliver you know, recipes and the ingredients for those recipes to your door. But those are really expensive and a lot of families can't afford those. And I believe there's a really simple thing. Most of us have an oven. Now we don't all have a multi-cooker, um, but I do, you know, it's not an expensive piece of equipment and it's certainly something that I'm so glad I invested in. Um, and if you have the opportunity to literally chop up a few vegetables or prepare a few ingredients and like you say, pop it on a roasting tray, sheet pan, whatever you want to call it, put it in the oven. Or if you can put those ingredients into a pot press a few buttons and walk away and go and do something else. To me, those are the solutions that we're looking for in our, in our modern lifestyles. We haven't got the time to, to, to faff about and to, to worry about, you know, standing over the stove, stirring or, you know, adding multiple ingredients. We want minimal ingredients. And quite frankly, if I see recipes with 18 ingredients, I'm put off. But if we have minimal ingredients and they're real food ingredients and we have to do minimal work, but we can eat a great meal at the end of it, then isn't that the solution that we want? And if we can sit down and eat together as a family, which I'm really passionate about, and if you're not as part of a family, then socially, then that is so much better for us overall. And we know it's better for our gut health too. One of your fellow countrymen, um, Natasha, Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride, says we have to get back into the kitchen to feed and nourish our family to heal this nation. And you echo that exact same thing. And, you know, I don't think people realise the importance of knowing how to cook. Um, and it doesn't have to be hard, you know, where, uh, you know, I've been on the road for three weeks. I'm doing a special program where I'm only allowed a few foods. And it's just a matter of organising and prepping and being ready. And as you said with, um, what did you call it, a multi it's a multi-cooker so basically yeah it's a it's a pressure an electric pressure cooker that's also a rice cooker and a yogurt maker etc that sounds just amazing so you know with with that i um i you know people can learn how to do things you know simply here the thermomix is very popular but obviously you've got a, another machine there that's probably a lot cheaper than the thermomix um that obviously will help uh, people do that <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Let's get on to... It was... Yeah, go on. No, go on. I was going to say the, um, the reason that I found out about uh, something called the Instant Pot, which is the brand that I recommend, is through the Thermomix community. Um, so that, that's, you know, the irony there is that, there were the, you know, it's people that all really want the quicker solution, but um, I found that the Instant Pot community here is just so much bigger um, then the Thermomix community, and I, I, that could be a cultural thing, um, but it's maybe a cost thing too. Mm, yeah, no doubt. Let's get on to how you figured out that your gut was um, the issue. What did you have to do in order to do that, to, to help your gut? Yeah, so um, as I say, I, I've been travelling to Africa in my 20s. I had had uh, glandular fever when I first went to university in my first degree, and I'd struggled since then with my immune system. Um, and obviously the, the thing we know about that condition is that generally a lot of antibiotics are thrown at it, and they were. Um, having not 
had a lot of antibiotics as a child, thank goodness, having been born naturally, having been breastfed. Um, you know, I was quite, I had a really good immune system, but this, this onslaught of, of, I think, antibiotics in my, in my late teens, uh, followed by probably not the best lifestyle being at university not to be too much of uh, that happened next and unfortunately over the course of the next well, sort of six years I realized that there were lots of things going on I'd suddenly started struggling more with sort of um, bouts of anxiety um, I had obviously gut health problems um, to, you know, bleeding and distension, and I felt there was certain that I was becoming intolerant to increasingly. Um, and so, when I started to investigate all of the aspects, all of the health aspects that are related to gut health, I think that's when I really sat up and thought, hold on, you know, the number of people that complain of, of stomach or they complain of problems with their tummy or their, their stomach or their gut, um, it's so much further afield than that that that, that poor gut health affects. And when I made that connection between the gut and the brain, um, your mood, it just made so much sense to me. And when I looked at other people, other family members, when I looked at friends, when I looked at some of my, um, some of the clients that were coming into my clinic, you know, it, it made so much sense. Um, so yeah, when you start looking at the science behind this, and it's such, well, you'll know, Cindy, it's huge field of, of study now I mean there are so many studies but most of them are so new um, I already feel like I want to top the book up with more studies that I've read since you know it's it is such an exciting time well I'm sure you'll probably be able to put another book out with the amount of information that is coming out and I just loved what um, you you talk about and how well you put it together and and that you you know, you go through the whole gut-brain axis and what's happening in Australia and probably England and, and America at the moment, anywhere where we seem to see a decimation of the gut bacteria and, the, you know, the integrity of the microbiome is the rate of suicide amongst young people, the rate of mental illness. And even um, a big thing that's happening is... Um, when our soldiers come back from war, they're not coping at all. And, um, you know, a lot of people say that people yeah. went to the war in World War One and World War Two and didn't seem to have the amount of post-traumatic stress that they're now seeing our soldiers coming back from the war. Would you like to address, um, you know, what is happening there, what you think other than antibiotics that could be eroding um, the gut bacteria yeah. around the world? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you, you absolutely highlight here, you know, with, yes, mental health problems, skin health problems, such as, um, you know, eczema is on the rise. Um, again, if we look at uh, in, in children with autism, I mean, the majority have uh, an imbalance of gut bacteria. Um, and it, you start to look at it and you think, okay, so this actually, if you look at the imbalance of gut bacteria, has to play a role in body systems that are far beyond the gut um, and, and again when we look at the studies that show what's going on and like you said the gut brain access we know that there is a disruption um, of, the, of the balance within within the brain um, but I think the fascinating thing is how did we get here like what's so different between now and 
just the early uh, 20th century, First World War, Second World War, what is different in it? Is it our environment? Yes, certainly. There are aspects of our environment that are so different. Um, the pollution, uh, for one thing. But is it also the food that we're putting into our bodies? Absolutely, yes. Um, one of the questions I was asked, I was doing an interview uh, the other day for, for, for a newspaper, which was um, about a new uh, kombucha range, which has come out. And the, the last question that I was asked is, is this whole food fermentation thing a bit of a fad? And I was, I was livid. I said, no, if you look at every single long lasting culture in the world, they have a fermentate or a fermented food in their culture. They have fermentation in their culture. Um, and people have always fermented foods. And that is a way, yes, of preserving food. I'm, I'm sure back in the day, people didn't think, oh, well, that's going to increase the lactobacillus. They didn't think that. But they did see, OK, when I eat this food, I seem to be much healthier. Or I, don't, I seem to get less ill, I seem to survive longer, or our family members do. So we have lost our, our food culture, not just preparing foods from scratch, but the sorts of foods that are actually good for the gut and, and help the gut and produce probiotics. Um, so here, you know, if you look at Germany, sauerkraut, you look at Korea, kimchi, you look at Eastern Europe, kefir. Um, all of these foods, they served a purpose within that culture and it, it worked. And again, you know, if we look at even what I talk about prebiotic foods, you know, these are the foods that feed the good bacteria in the gut. We don't have as anywhere near as many prebiotic foods as our ancestors had. And we've lost that because we've moved to a, a fast food culture. We've moved to a processed food culture. And the number of people in the, in the uh, population grew at such a rate. You can see why food production changed, even things like processed meats. You know, we would have had uh, processed meats that were just hung and dried and salted to cure them, but they weren't processed in a factory and they didn't contain all the nitrates that we now know that aren't, are the things that aren't so good for us. Um, you can see now the abundance of nitrate-free products that are coming out. And my big bugbear, of course, is going to be bread. You know, what happened to bread? Um, not just the grain that we used to make the bread, but how we made it. In 1961, we brought in this Chorley Wood method, which meant this fast rising process to make bread. And of course, in that process, we lost the fermentation. We lost the breakdown that happens when you make a traditional sourdough. So the number of people that I know who go abroad and can eat a proper French Parisian ball, but they can't eat the baguette for the local supermarket here because of the way that it's made, that is a, is a, is a crime as far as I'm concerned, because I do believe that the way we make bread and certainly the grain we make bread with has caused us to have problems with our guts where there wasn't in the past. It is a crime. Yeah, I was wondering if you, you mentioned fast food, and I'm just curious to understand in this day and age, teenagers, can we, I hope you don't mind, if I ask a question around teenagers, what is your biggest concern around what foods they're eating, what lifestyles they're living, and tell me how you think that's affecting their gut, which in turn then leads on to things like obviously fertilisation and, and infertility and all of those sorts of things. Can you give me some ideas, particularly as I keep hearing about how low teenagers are and things like iron? Yeah. Can you give us any understanding as to what's happening there and what we can do to support 
our teenagers. Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting time, isn't it? It's, um, I, I have a teenager and, you know, certainly at the point at which the hormones start to change, I think the environment changes, the pressures on them increase. Um, there are increasing amounts of mental ill health, uh, eating disorders, um, obviously skin problems from acne through, through to other um, including things like rosacea in in teenagers and again you know things that we know to be related to the gut well look at the same time as all of these things are happening what is going on in their life world they're going out more they are faced with the option to buy food um, and often the cheapest things that are available to them are going to be processed foods foods that lack actually any nutritional value um you know whether it's sort of fast foods and sort of chips and burgers through to sweets and abundance of sweets and candies um you know just if, if there is any imbalance already in in the gut we know you know when you if you are a food fermenter you know that uh, bacteria love sugar right so if you've got any bad bacteria hanging out in the gut and then you put some some refined carbohydrates, you put some sugars into the gut. They're just going to have a right old party um, and they're going to thrive and survive, those bad guys. And that's exactly what these teenagers are going out and doing. So they're just adding to their to their own problems by you know, creating a, a dysbiotic or dysbiotic um, environment for their, for their gut and then not really addressing it. Um, one thing I do with my own teenager is I have her drinking kombucha every single day. Because, you know, teenagers can be difficult and that's our compromise. She actually really enjoys it. And it's something that we found. The one thing we found that she really loves, luckily she really a little bit of sauerkraut. That's the Germanic roots to our surname. Um, but it's a tough one, really, really tough. And I think our teenagers are entering a time now where the education that they have around food is so poor that they, they will not for a moment make the connection between what they put into their tongues and what they feel in their heads. And that's the bit that needs addressing as far as I'm concerned. Jenny, I, I look at, um, so I'm out of the three of us, I'm the one that's all about the mindset. Right. So, <laughs> so I look at, um, you know, everything that's going on and just, you know, Cindy asked the question about, you know, the link between gut health and suicide and, worldwide um one person commits suicide every 40 seconds and we're expecting that figure to double by 2020 to one person committing suicide every 20 seconds the concern that i'm thinking of is that when we look at gut health we know that the mind and the body are connected how do you see you know from all of your research and all of your your amazing study what link have you discovered that links the mind and the body and the, 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 uh, the mindset or the psychology of our teenagers? You know, because our greatest that are at risk at the moment are our youth. How do you see the link between their mindset and their psychology and their way that they view the world? How does that relate to gut health? So, so basically, um, when there is uh, an imbalance of bacteria in the gut, and we call that dysbiosis, so the, the bacteria are no longer living in harmony. Most of us should have, we should have a harmonious uh, balance of bacteria. We do all have bacteria in our gut. Um, but when we get a di dysbiosis, that's when we get an imbalance of bacteria. That starts to change things. 
And what we know is that that can change things in such a way that we can end up uh, basically breaking down the integrity of the gut, the gut lining. Now, we should never have these two systems, uh, the digestive system within the body and, and the rest of the body, um, interacting in such a way that things can actually leak out of the digestive system and into the body. And when they do, that's, that's a toxic uh, that's a toxic outcome because that means that our body has got to react and respond to a foreign invader. You know, who would have thought that you put something into your body, which is food that you may have had previously, may have had 10 years previously, didn't cause you a problem. But now it's leaked out of the gut and into the body. And that's causing your body to have to respond and react in, in a particular way. And what we know is that when this starts to happen, and this, again, if we look at the, the guts of <clears throat> people with, um, with psychological problems from anything from you know, depression through to low mood, from anxiety, and we've got, uh, I mentioned autism, uh, you know, we've got all sorts of different aspects related to, to mental health um, and their outcomes. We know that a, uh, a defined or a reduced gut integrity seems to be part of the problem. Dysbiosis seems to be part of the problem. And what does seem to be part of the solution is uh, probiotics and good bacteria. Now, this is where we, we need to investigate more because the very specific blends of probiotics are still slightly unclear when it comes to what can specifically address certain things. Um, but there are studies that prove that certain probiotics do improve anxiety and certain probiotics do improve mood. And, and I would say, you know, we are not going to harm by... By putting these probiotics, the ones that have shown uh, positive outcomes in, in tests, um, by putting those probiotics into the into the gut at the same time as addressing the integrity of the gut lining, at the same time as addressing the diet, you know, which again, when you've got someone with low mood, you've got someone with any sort of psychological issues, it's quite hard to take care and to start producing food for themselves but i think this is part of the part and parcel of the whole solution to the problem it's got to be uh, multifaceted um so it's what we put into our bodies it's healing the gut lining it's improving the amount of probiotic bacteria in our gut and seeing the improvements in our ability to produce the neurochemicals that help us get back into balance again it's a minefield out there and it's I don't know about you, Jenny, but, um, you know, I, I become very sombre during these times because I look at, you know, I was brought up in the 60s and 70s. Um, I, you know, graduated 1983. I don't remember this problem when I first graduated, when somebody wasn't doing well, and whether that be mentally or physically, if they were on the SAD diet and that's the standard Australian diet, then um, you just had to put them on a real food diet, get them back to real foods as we've been talking about. But as the decades have gone by, I'm now seeing, like this is a phenomenon, this is an epidemic, this is something that um, I believe is, is quite scary. It's almost like an, it's an extinction of our gut. So my question to you right now, is that can we come back from this, do you think? Do you, do you think when someone's had their gut microbiome completely decimated, 
you know, they have anxiety and depression, they've got chronic fatigue, you know, they've either got constipation or diarrhea, they're not digesting their food, they inflame to every food that they consume, they're sensitive. Do you think that there's a point of no return or do you think that we have a regimented um, or a, a toolkit of um, things that we can do in order to get these people well? I think what we have to face is that not everyone is going to get 100% better. But I do believe that everyone can get a degree better, two degrees better, three degrees better. I think there are, what we, what we know is that there are so many things that we can try um, as far as improving the integrity of the gut lining, as far as improving the balance of bacteria, um, as far as getting things working again is concerned. And I think what people have to have to stand, there isn't one pill fits all. Um, it is, there's no one solution to this. But I do think that however poorly you are related to gut health, to poor gut health, there are certainly things that we can do. You know, and, and we're talking about, I mean, here you're talking about very poorly people. Um, you know, some of which have terrible autoimmune diseases that are debilitating people that can't get out of bed on a daily basis. And again, you know, you, you will know people who will say, well, there must be, there must be a pill for that, but it isn't about that. This is a very slow process when we start actually addressing the underlying problem and the gut is very much part of the underlying problem. But I do believe that if we get get it right and there's going to be a few you know hiccups along the way but if we can get addressing the gut health right from the very start if we can start to put that whole food whole food diet back in if we can start to get that relationship back with the sort of foods that actually do calm that do heal you know and when i say those words to people with gut issues they it's well with them they that's what i need that's what i need so if we do start to get all of that right we can see improvements, but it's not a straight, you know, incline. It's, there's, there's going to be little dips uh, along the way. And, and that can be to do with what we've eaten. That could be to do with stress. That could be to do with a number of other environmental issues beyond which we have no control. But there are many things that we can do that are within our control to, to get better. Um, and that's really what I want, you know, people to take, not only from the book, but, I, but you know, from, from when I speak and, and I'm sure all the work, you know, that you guys are doing, it's got to be about, you know, a progressive um, improvement, overall improvement. And that's what I'm trying to, to get across. You know, it's not going to be a, a, a one pill fixes everything. It's not going to be one solution fixes all. Um, but it is going to be a journey. Um, and it is going to take a while and there are going to be hiccups, but it is so worth finding out more about the gut as part of that journey, because I believe that is the route. Um, pulled through the absolute, um, I guess, ringer of nutritional science. And I'm just interested in your thoughts around things like the ketogenic diet, the low-carb, high-fat diet. Is there some way that someone should straight away or do you think it's even more simple than that yeah it's that's a really interesting one because as you'll see from the from the books that I've written you know I believe that there are still tons and tons of people that don't have to go down any 
particular in terms of what they how they other than to make sure that they currently they change from what they're currently doing to, to eating a, a whole food diet we you know where cindy was mentioning you know getting people you know cooking from scratch i believe there are a whole load of people that if they did that one thing they and i and i believe that is one thing they can change that is sustainable and doable um then they may never get to the point of very poor health but i do believe that there are people um you know increasingly obviously numbers of people who struggle with all sorts of metabolic conditions and type 2 diabetes and and heart problems who have led you know i, I often say and even people who are, are very much overweight none of this stuff happens overnight it happens because you have had habitually uh you know different ways or, or perhaps the wrong way of eating for, for a very long period of time um so it, because that that has been in place for so long you are going to need something quite different from what you've been doing to get right back out of that again and of all of the ways of doing that i believe that that you know that, that the ways you're talking about you know the sort of low carb higher fat is definitely a way that we have seen to improve to turn things around for people um who have for so long eaten so poorly um and the results are incredible um and i also as far as the ketogenic diet is concerned again have seen amazing um, changes in, in the way people eat but I, from my own perspective and in terms of our relationship with food I think the biggest thing that we can all do to ourselves and for our families is is to start cooking real food from scratch don't buy anything with a label on it you know buy good quality meat so we're not having chicken every night we're having good quality chicken once a week the whole chicken and make use of every part you know, I, I think simple things like that we need to get back to. Those are the those are the traditions that we we've lost, but I don't think they're the time-consuming elements that stop us from having these as part of our life in our in our modern busy society. In one of the chapters of your book, you talk about um, obesity, and I love the rat study. Can you talk yeah. about um, the rat study, obesity, and our 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 gut health? Yeah, so that's a really interesting one, and it's one people ask about quite a lot. You know, could my uh, could me being overweight be related to to gut bacteria? And and yes, the answer's got to be yes. I mean, at the very simplest level, if I, I mentioned that bacteria love sugars, so if you do have dysbiosis and you have this imbalance of bacteria, you know, the 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 guys that are in there that shouldn't be in our guts or that are in there in too great a number in our guts. They're going to make us want to eat refined carbohydrates, um, you know, our white bread and our biscuits and our cakes. Um, and But they're also going to make us want to eat sugars. Um, and so certainly we know that when we eat, you know, foods that are higher in refined carbohydrates, then we do put on weight. But the second element to it is that, again, if you look at the guts of um, overweight, obese people, they have far fewer bacteria, so much less diversity of bacteria than slim people. And so the, I think the experiment you're talking about is where they took twin, um, twin rodents and they implanted the bacteria from an overweight uh, female into one of the, into one of the rodents. And they fed them the same diet, and the um, the, the rodent with the bacteria that was uh, from the overweight individual ended up putting on weight. 
But then they put the rodents in together. And what happens is that they start actually to, dare I say, eat each other's feces, which is normal rodent behavior, apparently. Um, and so what happens then is that the, the bacteria seem to normalize because what's happening is that the rat or the rodent that has the, um, the imbalanced bacteria, or the poor diversity of bacteria, starts to get the good bacteria. So it's like an infusion of good bacteria. And then they both have a, a lean, um, but, you know, they both have a good body mass, lean body mass after that. And so what we can take from this is if you were to take a transfusion of good bacteria into the body, we know that it's easier to stay slim. Um, and so, yes, we do know that there's a relationship between a good balance of bacteria and a diverse range of good bacteria and a slim body and being able to manage what we eat, which is actually quite groundbreaking because for so long people have said it's only to do with the food that you put in your body and not necessarily to do with the bacteria in your gut. So the next stage has got to be working out what, you know, what range of bacteria, what range of probiotics could we be putting in? And there are some studies that show um, that that is, you know, that certainly you can put a, a, a range of bacteria in and it can improve our obesity rates um, but I think that's the next area and just as an aside and again I mentioned antibiotics um, earlier on but again we know that antibiotic use and obesity is um, related um, and certainly there's a uh, one researcher um, who uh, he did the, some research on on rodents as well but then he decided well how can I prove this in human beings and he looked at a map of antibiotic prescriptions and and then he laid the map of obesity uh, rates on top and where antibiotics have been prescribed in the greatest numbers were the greatest obesity rates that is fascinating to me it is fascinating so do you think that we might use fecal transplants to get rid of the obesity epidemic yeah. do you know work. what yes i can put on <laughs> I absolutely can see that happening in the future. You know, fecal transplants are, again, something that we a while ago would have just went, no way, you know, that is not my bag. But it absolutely has to be something that we consider. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it, it seems so drastic, doesn't it? So to, to my mind, if we could, if we could, we may need to use that in people that are really poorly. And I'm sure people that are really poorly because those people that can't get out of bed every day, you know, there's got to be a better way. Um, and I think that is going to be a solution. If you can afford to do it, great. That would be, that would be the way to do it. Um, but then, you know, if we can avoid people getting to that position in the first place, even better. Mm. That's the key, isn't it? While we're here on the topic of improvement, I'm wondering, could you give us some tips on um, a busy mum, a busy family listening to this, and they're thinking, how can I improve what I'm giving my kids or my family? Yeah. Apart from getting your two books, the first two books and recipes, have you got some tips and ideas on how to get started on a more healthy or an improved lifestyle? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think most of the education that children have around food is going to come from the home. It's going to come from a, a good relationship with food, a normal relationship with food where you sit down to a meal in the evening at least. Um, if you can now, I appreciate people are busy, but as many meals in the evening as you can during the week, you, you prepare. Um, digestion starts uh, as soon as we start to prepare the food. 
Um, and that's really important because therefore we've all got to play a part, whether that's the smells that emanate from the kitchen, whether it's the family sitting in the kitchen, perhaps doing their homework whilst you're preparing. I think that's great. Getting children involved in cooking. Yes, please. So that's a really important thing. I think we need to look at some of those traditional um, foods that we've lost and the way that foods were made. I'm not saying we've all got time to start making our own ferments, although I have to say I, I run courses in that and it's not hard, um, you know, whether it's taking, and it's cheap, you know, taking a cabbage and fermenting that in a, in a, in a jar for, you know, four days or whatever. Um, and then if we, if we can't make our own, then I do think if we can afford, you know, to put a few fermented foods into the body. Uh, I've said with my daughter, we've, we've got kombucha with my son, he likes kefir. Um, so, you know, we, we just, whatever we can, whatever compromise, I know how hard it is as a parent. So whatever compromise we can get to when it comes to fermented foods, that's good. Um, prebiotic foods, really, really, if we can try and in improve. And again, we talk about getting our kids to eat their fruit and veggies. But to my mind, it's not so many children never, never know why. They never know why they should be doing it. Um, and I talk about things like flavonoids, the brightly colored fruits and vegetables. Flavonoids actually help fuel the good bacteria in the large intestine and we don't even make that connection for them. So, you know, whatever it is, we paint the picture that we need to feed the army or we need to, you know, let the party begin um, in our in our guts or our tummies, whatever the terminology that's age appropriate for our children, they've got to understand that we do need to look after our gut bacteria. And and eating brightly cut of fruits and vegetables is certainly one of those ways. So prebiotic foods um, and even things like uh, unresistant, uh, sorry, resistance touch, not unresistant resistant starch resistant starch so um again this is quite a new area but certainly things like underripe bananas we now get all of our bananas green um and we eat them green because that's a really good sort of source of resistant starch which again can provide fuel for um for good bacteria so real foods but also just when you're talking to your children make sure you know what's going on around gut health and the relationship between food and gut health um making sure they're getting enough vitamin d you know, uh, it's a huge issue where many people, and obviously particularly in the UK, are not getting enough vitamin D. We're moving into winter here. And I know so few people that realise there's a connection between gut health and vitamin D, which we must really think of as a, as a hormone and not so much a vitamin. Um, and so, you know, all of these things, educate your children as you go along, but just get them involved in the process of making real food from scratch um, and, and buying foods that don't have a label. All right. I want to go back to the green bananas. Yes. I have to go back there because now in Australia we've got green banana, um, you know, um, flour. But Flour, yes. Yes, but yes. when I taste a green banana, like, I can't take it. Tell me how you do that. <laughs> I don't know what the magic is, but literally my, my children are asking for them now. Oh. Um, I, it, it is. It is something we know. So um, this resistant starch is quite a new area. Um, underripe plantains are another one that you can use, and, and I actually use them baking sometimes. Um, they're a really good kind of starchy uh, component to to bake. Um, you know, obviously um, only with natural sugars, and then um, cooked and cooled um, rice and potatoes. Um, and and again, you know, this is one of the things that. Yes, people wouldn't necessarily. We found has an increased provides an increased amounts of uh, resistant starch, and that means it doesn't get broken down until it gets into the lower gut, which means it can provide the 
fuel for um, the, you know, the trillions of bacteria that exist there. Uh, and again, you know, that really ties in with the whole lunchbox side of things, because if you can cook and cool potatoes, rice is a difficult one, because obviously you've got to keep it cool enough, and otherwise you can get um, food poisoning from it. But certainly potatoes, cooked and cooled new potatoes in their skins, fantastic for lunches. Um, so I've got an abundance of um, you know, people producing recipes that relate to like potato salads, um, little filled mini jacket potatoes, all those sort of things going into the lunch boxes now. You know, every barbecue in Australia had a potato salad. And I've noticed because, you know, everyone's freaking out about carbohydrates, but they've stopped yes. having the potato, potato salads. They've stopped eating cold potatoes. You know, it was always you'd roast the potatoes eat them hot but then in the morning there was always some cold and you'd you'd get in there with the the gravy and you'd eat that and it's so sad that we've you know we've forgotten common sense and back to the I know, I know. absolutely <laughs> it is it, it is absolutely and I agree that you know if we that that lady asking me the other day in the interview, you know, is this a fad? I, I I think we have a mindset which we have a short attention span as a race, and we do get led easily by things. You know, I think how easily people were led to believe that low fat was a good idea. It isn't. Uh, you know, we need to, as you say, stick with common sense. If the food comes from the ground, a tree, a healthy looking animal, this is good food. If it comes in a package and we're attracted by its brightly coloured you know, font or, or, or by its bright coloured imagery, that's not good. You know, we have to be attracted by the real appeal of natural foods. And that's how we should be making the decisions around what goes into our, into our guts. And we do have an instinct. You know, we do have an instinct about certain things. And we do have an ability to, when, when everything's working well, to say, I've had enough. You know, but but we 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 override that. I mean, love that um, phrase. I'm trying to think what it is. This is an Okinawan phrase, which means eighty percent full. You know, how many of us eat until we sit back, put our hands on our stomachs, and go, "I'm stuffed." We don't want to be eating like that. We need to be eating intuitively. We need to be eating mindfully. We've got to slow down. We've got to enjoy our food. We've got to chew it properly. You know, and and that's. That's the reflection of our society when, when I have clients that can't even chew. They've lost the chewing reflex because they've been using, you know, shakes. And, and what is that? You know, we've got to get back to that intuitive eating. It's um, Harahashi Boo. That yes, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, it, 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 yeah, we just don't do that. And you know what? I think we've lost our instinct because everyone's out there eating McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Lean Cuisine, Healthy Choice, Margarine, Low Fat. And our body, it, when you're feeding it those wrong things, I actually not only think that it affects your gut and your physical body and everything else, um, but it's also affecting how intuitively you can um, be in what you should be eating. So I was at a fitness show. I, I, I got to tell you this. I was at a fitness show, and I got to tell you, being at fitness shows is is quite different to what any other show I've ever been to. And the girls are um, false eyelashes. Most of them have had their breasts done, um, wearing skimpy outfits, and the boys are just showing their chests and their muscles. And um, it, you know, it's it's quite an amazing you know place to be in 
And, you know, while I was there, I got to go on this machine that told me my uh, weight, um, my muscle mass, my fat percentage and all of those things. And then he said, oh, we're going to create a genetic um, thing to help with this so we can tell people how much carbohydrates they should be eating, how much fats they should be eating and how much protein they're eating. So when my um, score came up, he just said to me, oh, my goodness, this is probably one of the most perfect scores I've ever seen, which, you know, I felt rather flattered about. But I don't need that information. I intuitively eat. I, you know, I don't measure anything in my diet as far as how many grams of protein can I have, how many um, carbohydrates. But we're now getting into this world where we need a machine to tell us that and another machine to, or DNA testing to say how many carbohydrates you should be eating. So it's, it's getting crazy. And I, yeah, I don't know if yeah, we, yeah. We're moving into prescriptive eating and, mm. and that is not where we need to be. But I think it's happened because we've lost that relationship um, with what we need and what we don't need. And a lot, you know, again, people talk to me about, well, tell me portion sizing, how much should I eat? And I'm thinking, well, on any one day, you may have used up more energy, you may need more um, than any other day. So unless you eat what your body needs, then I, I, I can't tell you. I can't tell you exactly how much you need. Your body will tell you. I'm not inside your body. You know, um, but, but because we have lost that, it's almost like people need to be told that this food is bad. This food is good. You have to eat five of these. You can't have too much of this. This one, you have to have a thousand grams. It's just, unless they, unless they can follow that, and that's why so many of these apps exist, then people don't know how to eat. So, so you know, the, the biggest thing that I believe as far as parenting and educating children is concerned is we've got to allow them the opportunity to eat intuitively. We've got to show them how it's done. You know, and, and to my mind, you know, the, the eating together thing is important for so many reasons. But actually, you know, your children are watching you. They're watching how you interact with food. They're watching your relationship. And um, it, I, I think that is so, so important in terms of how, how people's um, children learn. I really do. Yeah, and, we've, and when you think about it, that first six months of life is an imprint into the um, the baby what it will eat for the rest of its life because it's a survival mechanism so if the parents are eating um, McDonald's and Kentucky Fried and all of those foods then those people those parents are going to be upset when their kids aren't going to eat fruits and vegetables and all they want is junk food and and if a mother knows this and this is what we're not telling and we're not educating and that's what I love about your book is that I think that your book belongs on every medical doctor's office, every nutritionist's office, anyone that does anything to do with healing should read your book as well as every mother layperson because, I don't know, as I was reading it, Jenny, I just thought you've laid it out beautifully. It's common, it's, it's, it's science, it's research. There's a bit of common sense in there that not many people understand that. But for me, I just... I loved it. So I highly recommend this book um, for everybody. And I will put a link in the show notes as to where you can get it in Australia. Is it on Kindle? Is it, um, have you done an audio of it? What have you done? <laughs> Audible. I have done an audio. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I will get back to you and let you know. All right. Sounds good. And if people want to find you, um, 
where do they look for you? What's to your website, The Lunchbox Doctor? Yeah, so you can go to lunchboxdoctor.com. Obviously, there's a Facebook page and there's a really active Facebook group, Lunchbox Doctor Facebook group. Um, but also for any of the other work that I do, um, it's Jenny Tishi. Um, dot com and uh, and that's uh, an area that you know obviously I, I, I that's all my my speaking and my nutritional work is there any words of wisdom that or something that you would like to say that we haven't asked a question for a question to you about that that's a really good question <laughs> um, you can probably um, hear from everything that I'm saying and thank you for asking such pertinent questions today I'm very very passionate um, about this subject I hope not to preach I hope only to, to, to educate but in a in a non-preachy way um, I would love to um, well you know I, one thing I would love to do and I hope to do is, uh, is to come over to Australia and to, to speak over there too at some point in the future um, so really that that's it you know I, I would love to do that and um, certainly if there are audiences over there um, then yeah I'd, I'd be very um, I'd receive that invitation very welcomely <laughs> oh that's well, it I just joined your lunchbox doctor group <laughs> and online I've signed up I want those two cookbooks I want that machine Kaz I think you're going to want that machine I, I don't know if it's available here I'm on the morning it has a cult like following the machine the instant pot has a cult-like following it's incredible and that, that book um i i hadn't even published it the weekend before it was published um it went to number one bestseller on cookery equipment in amazon um and that's how i mean people love it absolutely love it so uh, the day it was published we sold out within hours you know um it's just such a popular machine Fantastic. Wow. Jenny, I'm going to be getting myself a machine. Kimmy, I'll, I'll shout you one girl. <laughs> Jenny, it's, I love you. Jenny, it's been an absolute honour to share the last hour with you. Thank you for all the work that you're doing in this field and for being so prolific about it and for really, you know, taking it to the masses and going global with it. Congratulations on your efforts. Congratulations on your message. And Thank you for being a part of today's show. It's been an honour to share it with you. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it and uh, lovely to, to virtually meet two of you and obviously see you again, Cindy. Uh, awesome. You are most welcome. <laughs> and I look so forward for, to seeing you here in Australia, Jenny. I think so for, to see you. <laughs> <laughs> so for all of our listeners, you've been very patient with our delays and us talking over the top of each other today. So thank you so much for that. When the three of us girls are in different places all around the country, sometimes our internet's not always perfect, but our commitment to bringing you amazing podcasts never wanes. So we're always there for you. We're always your girlfriends right there in your homes with you and between your two ears. So make sure that you tune in next week right here on Up For A Chat and become part of the ripple effect that's changing the world. And, oh, my goodness, we are going to see you on the ride. Bye for now, everybody. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives.
Boston Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.